David Browder promised me that if I was his friend, he would help me advance socially and in wealth and power. <laughs> I'm still waiting. So it's October, late October, which means there are nine short weeks until Christmas. And I mention that because uh, I know you all came here anxious, but I like to push people right over the line into panic <laughs> before I speak. I find it makes them more receptive to whatever it is I'm going to say. Yeah, so Christmas is coming. Uh, the displays are already out in the stores. And you will get some presents that are good presents, things that show love and care and meaning. And you'll get some presents that will go in the regifting pile. But there's a third category, the SIP, the self-improvement present. You will get some of those. These are just uh, little gift bags of judgment. <laughs> um, they, it's just something from the heart that says, unlike Billy Joel, I don't take you just the way you are. I see many areas for improvement in your life, and this gift will help you with just one of them. You know, the classic SIP is the gym membership. A more modern version of that was just seen on last week's tearjerker episode of Parenthood, where Zeke Braverman's children gave him a Fitbit. If you've got a Fitbit on right now, or some variant, raise your, raise your wrist, show us your shame. Yeah, there it is. <laughs> Yeah, so the Fitbit is a device you wear on your wrist. You never take it off. Big Brother is always with you. And the Fitbit, or other variations of it, track every step you take, every uh, move you make. It's like Sting, um, right there on your wrist. And uh, it's, it's, it tracks your steps, your calories, your sleep patterns, all that. So you can know, in case you weren't aware, it, it removes all the denial about how sedentary and horrible you really are. Um, you know, twiddling your foot while you watch TV does not burn nearly the number of calories that you thought it did. Restless leg syndrome is not a key to weight loss. Um, other examples include a subscription to a magazine uh, that someone in your life thinks you should read. Um, they want to correct your uh, deeply misguided political beliefs, or they just think you're not well-rounded enough. You know, Us Weekly has got to go and the antidote will be The Economist. Um, uh, so, the other, you know, um, sometimes you'll have a well-meaning person buy you uh, clothing uh, as a, uh, just a gentle hint that um, nobody wears cargo shorts anymore and the 90s are over, uh, you're just embarrassing yourself. I know a guy who was all about black jeans. He favored black jeans and, and not the skinny ones. Um, black jeans and shirts that were emblazoned with wildlife. Met a wonderful girl, uh, and he then uh, found himself the recipient of many SIPs, and now he's sort of uh, Mr. Banana Republic. See, uh, so we all, we, we have these, um, sometimes you'll see these situations. Um, so I just, I want to give you fair warning that nine weeks from now you may receive an SIP. So I just I'm encouraging you to begin the, the daily self-affirmations because you're, you, need to, you need to have as little self-loathing as possible. 
so you don't go into a complete tailspin uh, and do something you really regret on New Year's Eve. So just every day, tell yourself you're good enough, you're smart enough, uh, and you accept yourself just the way you are. It's time for algebra. There's a bell. Uh, people that are listening to the recording of this, there was a school bell ringing in the background. I want you to feel included as well. Um, the SIP is a symptom of that basic human desire to control. Control every person in your life, control every situation in your life, uh, control yourself. You've probably bought yourself some SIPs. If you have a job, uh, whether you're a boss or an employee, wherever you are on that org chart, you are very well aware of the attempts to control. You feel controlled. Uh, you, um, if you are a supervisor, I guarantee you there was, there is currently right now, as we speak, as we live and breathe, there was some, there is a person on your team who you are trying to control and whose performance is not acceptable. And you've tried the tough boss, you've tried the nice boss, you've tried the laissez-faire, you've prayed on your knees. You're trying to control this person. By the way, it's not working. Families are the worst with this, right? Um, the classic thing is when um, one person in the family comes to you and says, you know what, your sister is just not making good choices. Um, could you talk to her and maybe see if you could, you know, you, she has such a good relationship with you. She understand, you understand her. Maybe you can get through to her. Um, I come from a large uh, Mexican family and we, we invented this. Um, <laughs> it's what we do all the time. We eat and we try to fix people, but we do it by going around them. And uh, actually, we're... We're so, every time white people use this, we get royalties, actually. <laughs> uh, it's, we, we, we patented it a long time ago. So, and uh, the, we're six sigma black belts in triangulation. And this is all based on control. If you're a parent, you are, by definition, on some level, trying to control your children. Now, some of that's, well, good. I mean, you don't want them running in the street, but there's other things where you need them to look or be a certain way uh, that's uh, more about you than them, and you try to control their actions. We live in a world of control. It's our default setting. It's what we breathe in the morning, and it's uh, what we swim in all day long. And let's just look at some of the characteristics. Um, it's, uh, the world of control is a world of manipulation. It's a world of using emotional triggers, guilt, all kinds of things to get people, without directly saying it, but getting them to do or be what you want them to do or be. Um, we do this through guilt trips. We do this through uh, subtle glances. Uh, we do this through elbows in the ribs. We do this um, through self-improvement presence. We're trying to get people to be who we want them to be through manipulation. It's a world of logic or cause and effect. If you follow action A, if you follow this course of activity, if you do these steps or follow this formula, um, you will get what you want. These policies, these actions, these behaviors, you'll get the desired result. This is what we see every election cycle. Get the right person in, get the right law passed, 
and the world will be a better place. We'll get what we want. This is this all you can't do that unless you believe that you're in control. But if you believe that you're in control, then you can say, you just get me and I'll fix it. Or just get this policy and it'll make everything right. The world of control is also one characterized, I would say it's a world of just desserts. Not just dessert, like the end of the buffet at the Golden Corral, and I'm down with just dessert. I mean, just, thank you David Zoll for a, a polite laugh in the front there. You need to go to uh, Golden Corral more, apparently. Um, the uh, just desserts, getting what you deserve. That's what the world of control is about. You get what you deserve. If things go poorly for you, it's because you made a bad decision. You chose the wrong path in the choose your own adventure book of life. Um, you didn't engage in the right policies. You didn't elect the right person. You didn't make the right choices. You didn't do the right behaviors. And alternatively, if things go well, it's because you made all the right choices along the way. Just desserts, you get what you deserve. It's a world of carrot and stick, rewards and punishments, incentive plans. Do good things, get rewards. Do bad things, get demerits. As I said in HR terms, the world of control is a world of annual performance reviews. You know, at the beginning of the year, you sit down with your boss, he or she will ask you to write down your expectations, your goals. Just a word of advice, set them reasonably low. <laughs> but that it doesn't look low. You know, you wanna, the optics are important here. You don't wanna be obvious about your sandbagging. So you, you set the expectations and at the end of the year you meet with your boss and you uh, talk about um, how you've done, what you're, how you've done uh, in relation to your expectations. And there's three categories on these little things. You're, you can circle one, you do your own, then your boss does the other, and it's all a farce, but the, because um, you just do whatever you wanna do anyways. Uh, but the three categories are meets expectations, exceeds expectations, or does not meet expectations. Those are your three choices you can circle there on the form. Who or what are you trying to control? What are your expectations for yourself, or people in your life. Because there's something or someone or some ones, right? The world of control is our home planet. Like Krypton is for Superman. We know it well. We are from there. We're all trying to get some situation to work out the way we want. We're all trying to get some person to change to be the way we want. We're all trying to get ourselves to come out the way we want. It's been this way for a very, very long time. All the way back to almost the beginning. That beginning was described in a 2005 song by The Hold Steady, this band has a song called The Cattle and the Creeping Things, which is a quote from Genesis, and they describe how everything, how we went into the world of control. And they put it like this. The dude blamed the chick. The chick blamed the snake. 
I heard they were naked when they got busted. And it's not been the same since. It's a reference to Genesis 3 and the forbidden fruit. And it really hasn't been the same since. And you remember why they got busted. Do you remember what the snake said? If you eat this fruit, you will be in control. You will be like God, is what the snake said. And ever since then, we've labored under the delusion that we are in control. I mean, after that, immediately, Adam and Eve, they thought they were still in control. They tried to fix the situation. Maybe if we hide and use fig leaves, God won't know. This is the delusional thinking of people who believe that they're in control. So it's an old, old world, this world of control. Mockingbird believes uh, that Jesus Christ has something to say to us people here, down here on the world of control. Jesus knows a lot about the world of control. It was his home address for a little while. He, he, he never bought, but he rented for a few years in Israel. He kind of came and camped out here among us. And he knew it well. He'd been watching it for some time. And uh, he spent a lot of time with people who thought they were in control and who lived in the world of control and thought that that's how everything should be. One of my favorite stories that describes Jesus coming head on and colliding with this world of control is in the ninth chapter of John's Gospel. John chapter 9. Jesus and his disciples, we find them in Jerusalem, walking around. They are in the older part of Jerusalem, at the bottom of a hill, and there's a pool there. You could get on a plane and go there today if you wanted. They found the pool of Siloam. It's a spring-fed pool. It was one that because it was spring-fed and the water um, was fresh, you could use it for ritual cleansing. Big rectangular pool. And Jesus is there with his disciples and they notice a man there who the text says was blind from birth. Verses 1 and 2, as Jesus walked along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents? that he was born blind. Classic world of control type question. Because see, if something bad has happened to someone, it's because they did something bad. Uh, in the world of control, God gives out commendations for good behavior, demerits for bad, and so somebody's done something bad that this man's blind. In other words, the world of control is the world of Fraulein Maria who becomes Maria von Trapp. Are you with me, people? <laughs> the sound of music. I've just touched a very deep place for some of you. You know when everything is going really great for her there in Salzburg and she's dancing in the gazebo, the, the, it gets all soft and hazy, which is what old movies do when people fall in love. And there she is staring into Christopher Plummer's eyes. And she says, somewhere in my youth or childhood, I must have done something good. It's the world of control. 
Something I did made me deserve the good stuff I'm getting. But of course, the converse of that is if something bad happens, it's because you were naughty. And that's the world of control. So that's where the disciples are when they say, who sinned? When they see this blind man, who sinned? It is inconceivable to them. You keep using that word. I do not think it means what you think it means. It is inconceivable to them that, um, that someone didn't sin. Someone did. And their question is a little bit odd, right? They say, who sinned this man or his parents? He was born blind. What did he do in utero that was so bad? Well, maybe it was a preemptive strike, or, but probably, more likely, uh, his parents were the real naughty folks here. Uh, but there's no question in the disciples' mind that someone has done something bad to deserve this man's blindness. They live in the world of control. The world of control is not Jesus' home planet. He is not from there. And so when the disciples ask, who sinned, this man or his parents, he categorically denies the whole framework of the question. And he says, neither this man nor his parents sinned. He was born blind so that God's works might be revealed in him. The brokenness is not a punishment. The brokenness is where God works. I think you know where I'm going with this. I probably don't even need to say it. Mentally, you're already, you're already there. You're already, you already see the image of Jack Black in School of Rock. Because that's where I am right now. In that movie, Jack Black plays a, an imposter substitute teacher of a fourth grade class at a very elite prep school. And he walks into the classroom and on day one sees a chart on the wall, lists the students' names, and by each student's name is a collection of gold stars and black dots. He says, what is this? The class explains, well, the gold stars are for when we do something good. Well, what are the black dots? Those are demerits. That's when we've done something bad. Mr. Black stares, or as they know him in the movie, Mr. Schneebly, he stares at the chart, takes it in for a moment, and suddenly grabs it, tears it off the wall, and tears it into shreds. And he says, paraphrasing John 9, as long as I'm here, there will be no grades, no gold stars, and no demerits. We're going to have recess all the time. Jesus Christ is not from the world of control. He's not from the land of gold stars and black dots. And he's not from the world of annual performance reviews. And in John 9, after he rips the chart off the wall and says, Neither this man nor his parents sinned. He wants to underline the point. He wants to make sure that folks get where he's coming from. So he does several things. And beginning in verse 6, we read, After saying this, Jesus spit on the ground, made some mud with the saliva, put it on the man's eyes, 
Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. What's the big deal? He healed a guy. That's what Jesus does. Well, if you read ahead to verse 14, because a lot of controversy erupts after this healing. And the reason is that the healing was done on the Sabbath. The Sabbath is a big deal. It was a big deal in Israel then. It's a big deal in Israel now. Every elevator in Israel has a Sabbath button. If you put, it says Sabbath. You push the Sabbath button and it puts the elevator in a mode so that it will go to the top floor, stop on every floor on the way down, and then open for the next people to get on. So no one has to push a button when they get on the elevator. Because you can't do work on the Sabbath. It's a really big deal. And it was a big deal in Jesus' day, and you weren't allowed to do any work, and that included healing. And so Jesus' actions are very intentional, and he's trying to make a clear point. Because he could have healed the guy any way he wanted. He could have kind of Jedi mind tricked the guy. These are not the droids you're looking for. <laughs> C, right? He could have just done that. But he didn't even need to do that much, you know? Not, not even the finger wave. He could have... He could have just thought it. He could have bewitched it, just wiggled his nose. Or just used the mental telepathy, you know, just let this man see. But he didn't. He spits on the ground and makes mud work. He rubs it on the man's eyes work. Then he tells the man to go wash work. So all the rules are broken. And none of that seems like a big deal to you. Right? Those don't seem like really horrible things. But to get the impact and the weight of the story, you have to realize that for these public and flagrant violations of the code, would have said to anyone observing, this man is a sinner. You don't do these things. I mean, yes, we all have deep, hidden, sinful parts in our lives, but these are the easy parts. These are the external things that we can do to make sure everybody thinks we're good. You know, we're all, we all do these Sabbath regulations. But if you're breaking even those easy ones, well, what's going on in the rest of your life? So in the eyes of any observer, all the rules are broken. All the performance does not meet expectations. And yet, the man's eyes are opened. The people in the story, if you read on, there's people that then get all upset about it. The, the, the people who represent the world of control, the Pharisees, which before you get all negative on them, remember we're all the Pharisees. They freak out. They cannot handle what Jesus has done. Uh, they say in verse 16, this man, Jesus, is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. I mean, Sabbath is like 101. That's like kindergarten stuff for being a good religious person. And if he doesn't do that, he cannot be from God. That's the easiest thing, you know. Uh, and uh, in verse 24, they say, we know this man is a sinner. And then when the Pharisees get in a little interview, they interrogate the blind man who's been healed and now sees. And, uh, you know, he's saying, I don't know if Jesus is a sinner, but I know I see. And they say, how dare you lecture us? 
I mean, they completely lose it. They are freaking out here. They, they have no time for something and for someone like Jesus. Why do they freak out? Because in one fell swoop, Jesus has completely dismantled the world of control. He has depressed the plunger on the TNT and blown it up. Because how can someone who breaks rules so publicly and flagrantly and who tells other people to break rules, how can he get rewarded by God? How can he then do a miracle? How can this guy then see? None of that makes sense. If people who deserve who don't deserve good stuff, like this blind man, who obviously somebody sinned, probably his parents, if he gets good stuff, that messes up the whole incentive system that I've spent my life under. I mean, people will just do whatever they want. To quote Dr. Venkman, dogs and cats living together, mass hysteria. Ghostbusters, people. <laughs> and even more terrifying, I mean, if you're one of the high performers and Jesus comes along and messes up this whole system, I mean, I might not get my bonus. If they're just giving out prizes to everyone, this deadbeat blind guy from a sinful family, well, what's going to happen to me? How will everyone know how awesome I am if they reward good-for-nothings? Jesus freaks everyone out because he is demolishing the world of control, and to step out of the world of control feels very, very risky. I mean, that's why you are trying to control people in your life. Because if you don't get them under control, they might do something bad. Something bad might happen. You know, 50% of all your mental energy is imagining worst case scenarios. Those things might happen. And it's up to you to stop them. Right? The world of control is very ultimately narcissistic, right? We believe we have more power than we have to change things that we can't change. But it's comforting to think that we can. And to step out of the world of control into the world that Jesus invites us into is terrifying. And it also offends us, right? I mean, when someone wrongs you, you want to hold on to it. You want to punish them. You want them to get what they deserve from you and everybody else. You don't want to see them advance. You don't want to see them succeed. You want to see them fall hard. And that grudge feels so good. It feels right. They deserve your ire. They don't deserve your friendship or your forgiveness. So you just wrap yourself up in that nice, warm blanket from the world of control. Forgiveness. It's scary. That's risky. Because what if they hurt you again? What if 
that means they never understand the full extent of what they've done. What if they treat you like a doormat? I mean, they, they get away with it. That's how it feels. That feels very risky. But here's the thing. Jesus isn't from the world of control. He's from the world of risk. In this story and in countless other interactions that we see in the scriptures that describe the life of Jesus, he takes a lot of risks. He opens himself to all kinds of charges. He associates with the wrong kinds of people in the wrong kinds of places. He doesn't reward the right people. He's not fair. I mean, what had the blind man done to get healed? Did he go to a mockingbird retreat, take time out of his busy schedule to get close to God? Had he been reading his Bible? No. Had he been uh, um, doing good deeds? The text doesn't say anything like that. What did he do to deserve healing? Jack squat. So Jesus is giving away the store for free. He's playing fast and loose with God's reputation. And Jesus is taking another risk here too because uh, how can he be sure that this blind man having received this incredible gift, how can he be sure that the blind man will um, really appreciate it? How can he be sure that the blind will really now, from here on out, work for good and not for evil? How can he make sure that now that he can see, he will only watch documentaries and period dramas on PBS and never ever watch The Bachelor or Game of Thrones? And how can Jesus be sure I mean, since he's already given him the sight, didn't make him sign any contract, waive any rights to see, to use his eyes however he pleases, he just gives him the gift. The world hates risk. You hate risk. You spend your life avoiding risk. You all have insurance. Insurance companies have insurance. Some of the biggest companies in the world that you've never heard of exist to give insurance to insurance companies. Because they'll take a bet on you, but they know too much about you. Right, so the insurance companies need insurance. Because they got your number. When banks loan money, they don't just give it away for free. They charge you. And the more risk, the more they charge. They're not stupid. The world hates risk, and we try to wrap ourselves in bubble wrap. That's the world of control. We hedge, we hedge, we hedge. We are risk-averse, to use the language of economists. We play it safe, we stay inside the lines, no one gets hurt. But God takes a risk with us. As we see the way Jesus interacts with these people. He's got no insurance. 
He doesn't wag his finger at the man who now sees. Now don't do anything naughty. He doesn't hike up to interest rates. He just lets us off the hook. Welcomes us to the party and offers healing to people who haven't done anything to earn it or deserve it. They didn't even ask for it. Grace is risky. It's risky for God. This interaction that Jesus has with the blind man is a stand-in for every time Jesus uh, has an interaction with any sinner, any time God deals with human beings. He's got to get close to the sinners and the deadbeats. He's even got to get close to you. you don't, you're beautiful people. You don't look like sinners. But there is someone inside you that you'd rather no one see and so Jesus has to peel back the layers and get close to that. Jesus has to be seen in public with notorious sinners. He's got to risk egg on his face when the people he has saved and forgiven and freed fall on their faces. Grace is risky for God. And grace is risky for us. You know, we have to be honest. If we want to get the medicine to the place of hurt, we have to tell the doctor, the symptoms, and how we got them. We have to trust. And trust is terrifying. It's risky. You have to let go. And Grace is risky, too, because if God forgives us, that means he might forgive other people. That feels risky. If I get involved in this grace business, then I have to extend it to other people, and I don't, I'd rather not. Leaving the world of control feels like taking a big old leap and jumping with all your weight onto thin ice. The funny thing is, the shore on which we stand, the world of control, which think, we think is so solid, is actually the most fragile and the thinnest of ice, which gets proven every single time, you know, with every preacher scandal, with every major public failure of whoever was up on a pedestal, the world of control is fragile. Every time a career falls flat or there's a reversal or there's a call in the middle of the night, whatever you thought you controlled, you realize you didn't. And it turns out that the thin ice of grace is the solid rock on which we stand. The world of grace, the world of risk, we enter it when we come clean. Sometimes we're dragged, kicking and screaming, into it. But however you get there, it's where you open up the doors to the hidden places, the out of control places. 
And when you've taken that risk, now the God of risk, the God of no safety nets, can begin to work in those out-of-control places. God is not risk-averse. He seems to be risk-loving. Jesus runs headlong like a fool into these people's lives and into these risky places. It's good news that God loves risk. Because if he loves risk, it means he's like Abba. Now I'm not talking about the Aramaic word for father, I'm talking about the Swedish uh, disco group. (laughs) If God loves risk, it means that he's willing to take a chance (laughs) on you, because you are a poor credit risk. Your record is not stellar. I don't care who you are and what you've done. You know, we all have done things. The spring break of life or whatever it is. That one time in Myrtle Beach. Because Jesus is willing to pal around with these kinds of people, he's willing to pal around with you. And it is a risk. You might not get better. And here's, here's the secret, you won't get better. Or at least not in the way you think or in the time you think. But Jesus is one step ahead of you, this risk-loving God. See, his plan all along for us risky folks, his plan was to go to the cross. I love St. Thomas Church. I've spent a lot of time in this place. My kids went to school here when we lived here. The last time I spoke where I now stand, it was to a nave full of children. So that's why I'm really good at speaking to immature people. (laughs) It was a morning chapel service here at St. Thomas. But the thing I love about this place, the simplicity of this church, there's no Baroque nothing here. But the cross is so central. It dominates your view. And this God who loves risk, his plan all along was to go to that cross. The place where the people who are from the world of control thought they would snuff out this risk taker. I mean, you can't just let everyone into the kingdom of God. Mass hysteria. The risk of grace was too much for them. The world of control always, always tries to have the last word. But on the cross of Christ, God has the last laugh. Thank you.